because there's just so much more. We could have done the whole service around this, and maybe we will do more with them in the days today. But it's a wonderful thing that God is doing in the world today. He is uh, bringing people from many nations, too many nations, and uh, just like we were celebrating just a second ago, people who've left Canada to go out of love for God and out of love for humanity, uh, out of love for the people that God loves, God calls us into new relationships that cross cultures and that, uh, uh, that, that barriers are removed. And, um, and I love that whole back-to-the-hug thing. I love that you can, you can grow up in a culture where you never get a warm hug and then you encounter the people of God and you get one. Lord, make us more loving. Make us more loving. Help us to grow in those things. Well, today as I, I look at the time here, I'm going to try to share quickly this morning. Just to, I wanted to kick off a little bit of a new teaching. This is the first week of Advent, as has already been stated. and you can, um, But I want to just talk a little bit about one of the main emphasis of Advent. Uh, and it's not... See, Advent, sometimes we think it's just about the first coming of Jesus. Advent means to come. And so Jesus came. And so we, think, we talk about Jesus, and we talk about wise men and shepherds and angels and all the wonderful things that are about the Christmas story. But the season of Advent on the Christian calendar is not just about the first coming. In fact, it actually leans a little more strongly on the second coming. The second coming of Jesus, the, the coming uh, yet to happen. In fact, you could even say there's three comings. In fact, it is said that there's three comings that Advent focused on. His first coming, his second coming, and then a third middle coming that happens in between. Because we're living in the middle. We're living between the first and the second coming. And so what is that middle coming? It's how Jesus comes to us in our lives individually. So let me just read to you uh, 2 Timothy 4. 1 to 10. This is the main scripture passage for this morning. It says, In the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you... Sorry. Oh, yeah. I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who long for his appearing. So this passage begins with the phrase, in view of his appearing, that's his second advent, his second coming, 
In view of his appearing and his kingdom, he comes to establish his kingdom. Um, how many of you grew up observing Advent in the church you went to or in your home? Just, I'm curious. Okay. So if you go to what we would call a more liturgical church, although every church has its own liturgy, to be honest. But if you went to a more liturgical church, maybe like Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, uh, or Orthodox, um, you probably experienced some celebration or observance of the season of Advent. Um, again, for me, i sort of late to some of my understandings about Advent, but... It was surprising to me that Advent was not just about Christmas, the arrival of Jesus as a baby, but that it was actually he decently heavily weighted towards the second coming and towards how he comes in our hearts. Uh, you know the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel? How about we sing it? It always feels dangerous when I lead singing, but... But you guys are great singers, so as long as I don't start on a terrible key, we'll make it. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and rescue captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here. Until the Son of Man appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel will come to you, O Israel. It's quite an interesting song. It sort of has that sense of uh, significance and meaning, and, but longing is baked in. Longing is baked in. When I look at this last line of what I read to you of the scripture passage, it says, Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all those who have longed for his appearing. All those who have longed for his appearing. Now, if you read that in uh, other trans, this is the NIV I'm reading out of, but if you read it in the King James or New King James or the ESV, it says, all those who have loved or who love his appearing. So my question for you this morning is, do you love the second coming of Jesus? Do you love it? Do you love it? Now, it's very interesting that there's a crown of righteousness for those who, who long for his appearing or who love his appearing. I'm going to use love because of, of the context here. Because when you look at verse 8, Paul is saying, he's talking about his life. He said, I fought the good fight. This is verse 7. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. He's he is endured. He has persevered. He's gone through incredible hardship. In fact, he lists that other places. He's gone through beatings and imprisonment, and, and uh, he went through shipwrecks even in order to take the gospel to places that he had to go by ship. Um, he's faced all these different things so that people could know the truth about who Christ is and what Jesus has done for them through the cross and, and, and that their sins could be forgiven and that they could have hope and joy 
and life with him. So he says, I've done these things. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And I'm, there's in store for me a crown of righteousness. And then he goes on to say, God is going to give me this crown of righteousness. He's also going to give it to all those who have loved his appearing. It's interesting that he's talking about all this endurance and perseverance and that that is going to be rewarded the same way as loving the second coming. Doesn't that seem strange? The same crown is going to be given to both. And I think what the reality is, what he's talking about is loving the second coming of Jesus is the root of our perseverance. It isn't sort of like, well, I could persevere or I could love the second coming. I'll just love the second coming because that's a lot, little bit easier than going through hardship. <laughs> no, loving the second coming of Christ is the root of being able to persevere, of being able to endure, of being able to fight and finish and, and keep the faith. In fact, it's probably a general principle in life that what you love empowers you what you love helps you to persevere. I remember I asked my dad, I've shared this before, but I asked my dad, it was a, I'd, I had a chance to work with my dad in high school. He worked in a factory, a cheese factory, Saputo cheese. If you ever see it on the shelves, that's, we made that stuff. And I worked there in my high school years, and it was not a great environment, a work environment. It was very negative. Uh, if you were to use, say, a toxic work environment, it was one. And I saw the way everybody treated each other, it was, it was just a very negative environment. And so I asked my dad the question. I said, do you like your job? I mean, he'd been doing this job for many, many years before I came along as a summer student. I said, do you like your job? And he said, no. And I said, well, why do you do it then? And he said, because I have seven kids. That shocked me when he said that because, I mean, I'm from a different generation who sort of thinks, well, it'd be great to have a job you love, Right? I think we all think that, generally. But I, I came to really respect what he said because I thought, well, that's, I guess that's what a man does. A man has responsibilities, and he makes sure those responsibilities are taken care of, whether he likes it or not. So I had great respect for that. But lately, I've been thinking about, about that statement more and realizing, from my dad, that's actually a statement of love. That's a statement of love. Why do you do this job that you don't enjoy? Because I love my children. I love my wife. So what you love helps you to persevere. It allows you to deny yourself now for, for someone else's betterment or, or deny yourself now for a greater outcome later. And that's the same with loving Christ's return. It helps us to persevere. Now, loving Christ's return is rooted in loving Christ, period. The greatest commandment in the Bible is love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That's the greatest commandment. In the Old Testament and in the New, that's the greatest commandment. And it's, so you say, well, if you were to simplify, what are we called to do as, as uh, followers of, of Jesus? That might be a way that you could begin the conversation is to say, well, most of all, to be wholehearted in our love towards God. And so the first advent really feeds into the second advent. 
what you understand about what Jesus, why he came as a baby, why he lived a sinless life, why he died a sacrificial death, taking upon himself the sins of the world, your sin and my sin included. When you understand what he's done for you here and you come to love it, you come to love it. We were singing, one of the songs we sang this morning was just, I'm going to love you forever. Did that song resonate deeply with you when you were singing it? Did you go, yeah, I am going to love you forever. I do love you. When Peter denied Jesus three times, then Jesus, after he rises from, uh, before his death, then Jesus dies, he's crucified, and then he rises from the grave. He comes back to meet his disciples again. And Peter's living in the shame of all shames because he, he's denied Christ three times. And, and Jesus comes and restores him. But how he restores him is he just asks him three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I mean, could it be any more simple yet so deeply profound what it is to walk with this God who so loved the world, who so loves you, who so loves me, and invites us to love him back with all our hearts. So it's, do we love what we see about Jesus, what we know about Jesus in his first coming? If we do, then it's going to lead into loving the second coming of Christ. I don't know if you ever waited for a movie to come out, like a sequel. I mean, you so loved the first that you couldn't wait for the second. So loved it. I mean, sometimes movie sequels are, like, really delayed. Toy Story 3, I think it was, like, 13 years between Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3. I love the first two movies. Anyone else like Toy Story 1 and 2? I don't know. I love them. And then Toy Story 3 was coming. Oh, amazing. They're making another one. I love the first two. I look forward to the third one. And it wasn't a disappointment. In my estimation, it was good. I go back further back. If You'd have to be my age or older to appreciate this one. The Rescuers. Anyone? Again? The Rescuers. I'm talking about the golden age of Disney where they used to not destroy all their franchises. Anyhow, so The Rescuers. I think that was 11 or 13 years, somewhere in that span between The Rescuers and then The Rescuers Down Under. Australia. Wow, awesome. It's great. And again, a good, a good sequel. Loved the, loved the first appearing and really loved the second appearing. Probably the most anticipated sequel in my life. I didn't even know there'd be a sequel. I thought it was all wrapped up after I watched Star Wars. I saw it at the drive-in movie theater with my mom took me there, and I was way too young. I, don't let my ki- I never let my kids watch it that young, but I watched it that young. Anyhow, and then The Empire Strikes Back. I didn't even know that was the thing until they announced it. And then it was like, oh, can hardly wait to go, can hardly wait to go. And it didn't disappoint. It was full of reveals. It was incredible. I left The Empire Strikes Back going, is that true? You know what I'm, if you know, you know, right? Is that true? Is he really? I don't want to spoil it for you in case you haven't got to it yet. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, one of the lesser reveals, but good. When we look, when we, it's our love for who he is and what he's done for us that helps us to turn to the second coming and to love it as well. Now, I realize for a lot of people, the second coming, you can be nervous about it because you, you, if you read in the Bible, you read about all these sort of events or signs of the times or things that are attached to it, and you can have a sense of like, oh, wow, that sort of looks like it's a perilous journey towards that end. And there's, a, there's lots of different viewpoints on there are several different viewpoints on the progression of the end, uh, the order, what things happen first, what things do and don't happen. There's a lot of different viewpoints. I'm not probably going to solve all of those questions for you in these four-week series. So if you're hoping for that, um, I'm sorry. We will talk about that. We will talk about that. But I want to start with this because the second coming is a litmus test of our love. And my hope in this series is just simply this. As we talk about the second coming of Jesus, that a love for his second coming would be deeply rooted in your heart. And that it would cause great things to happen in your life. It would, cause, it would help you with your priorities in life. It would help you with enduring and persevering through hardship. It would help you see what is truly important and worth giving yourself to. You know, there's an example of how not to uh, love when it comes to these things, and that's in verse 9. I didn't read it, but I'll, I'll read it now. Verse 9 and 10 says, Paul says, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. So while Paul is saying, every, you know, I'm, I love the second coming of Christ. I'm so longing for it. I'm looking forward to it. Demas instead was saying, you know what I love? I love the here and now. I love this life. I love what I can get out of it. And so he deserted the work of spreading the gospel to people. And it says earlier in, those, in, the, in the verses that we uh, verse 3, it says, A time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine instead to suit their own desires. What did they love? Their own desires. Has their desires been reformed in following Christ to, to love him? Evidently not. Their desires are around hearing what they want to hear, and so they, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths because they love their own agenda. They love their own outcomes in life. In 2 Thessalonians, it talks about um, one of the reasons, one of the, one of the, the center or one of the centers of why what, what's going to happen when Jesus comes? I'll just read 2 Thessalonians 1.10. It says, On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at amongst those who have believed. 
What's, when Jesus comes, it's going to be the most glorious thing we have ever experienced. I don't know what you've experienced in the glory department. I've been to the Grand Canyon. I thought that was pretty glorious. I've seen the northern lights on some nights where they're spectacular. Those are pretty glorious. I've been to Niagara Falls. Pretty glorious. There's lots of glorious things that we can see, but these are small compared to the, seeing the glory of God revealed. We were singing a song earlier today. Lord, be magnified. Lord, be magnified. Be magnified. You know, it's interesting. I think our, we sometimes have a wrong association when we talk about magnifying the Lord because we all know what a magnifying glass is. Or mag, you know, it's like a magnifying glass. What do you do with a magnifying glass? You find something that's small and you make it big with your magnifying glass. And I don't think that's what we're talking about when we're talking about magnifying the Lord. Because he is not small, and we're not making him big. So I think the opposite thing should be maybe what we're looking at. Instead of saying, get close enough to God so you can sort of see that there's something of value there, and then try to make a big deal out of it. It's actually probably a telescope is a better analogy. So instead of making something small big, it's like make something that's incomprehensibly big perceivable. So imagine uh, taking a zillion steps back from God and getting the best telescope you could possibly get so that you could begin to just begin to grasp how glorious he is. You know, the other thing about magnify is when I hear the word be magnified, when we sing that song, be magnified in me, I think of the ways that people do magnify. They make a big deal of who God is through their lives. In fact, that was even showing up in our interview, right? Hazel Rain goes and gives 50 years of her life in India. Why? Because Jesus is worthy. Doug Sigoko gives 17 years, and his family gives 17 years in Guatemala. Why? Because Jesus is worthy. Right? Ron and Shirley give those years in Taiwan, because Jesus is worthy. You know, I, this really came home to me um, just a little while ago. We had one of our uh, young ladies from our church, Brittany, standing here, and she was going to give herself for people in, in far-off country. And I remember as she just talked about Jesus and who he was and who he is and how important he is, and I just kept thinking, oh, through her words and through her choice, how worthy Jesus is. He is worthy of giving up everything for. It's like Jesus said, you find, it's like a man who finds a treasure in a field and he realizes it is so worth it. It is so valuable that it would be worth giving up everything he owned if he could possibly get it. And so he goes home and he gives up, he sells everything to buy the field that holds the treasure so he could have it. And that's Jesus. He is worthy. He is so worthy. So we magnify him by our songs. We magnify him uh, with all sorts of things. But we magnify him, and we're called to magnify him by offering ourselves 
to him with all our hearts. The scripture uses all our hearts phrase a lot. We're called to serve him with all our hearts. We're called to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Seek him with all your heart. Return to him with all your heart. Rejoice and exalt in him with all your heart. Not half-heartedly, two-thirds of your heart. Not to glory, not to, not to, like when his glory appears, it's not, for those who are his people, it's not going to be a mediocre glorying. In fact, the verse we says, it says that the day comes he'll be glorified in his holy people and be marveled at among those who have believed. It won't be mediocre marveling. It won't be moderate marveling. It will be profound marveling that we will experience on that day. And we will realize that this was what we were made for. And sometimes we just need to be reminded. Sometimes we get so uh, into the daily grind of our lives of things that don't have have very little glory to it. And so the Bible and and the Christian tradition keeps calling us to elevate, to lift our gaze, to set our eyes on things above, to set our eyes on the one who we will welcome again when he comes. I was going to, let me read you two more verses, and and I'll, I'll wrap up here this morning. Two verses about glory. John 5, says, How can you believe since you accept glory from another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So I said before, like the story of Demas, loving this present age can compete with loving the second coming of Christ. But here's another thing. Loving the glory that we can get from other people can also compete with loving the glory that Christ has and that we will experience when he is revealed. So if we, if we say, yeah, I, 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 what I love is for other people to, you know, think I'm awesome. It's like, I've said this before, but it's like, you, it's like going to the Grand Canyon, and then as soon as you get to the side of the Grand Canyon to, to gaze at its vastness, you just pull out a hand mirror and look at yourself. Like, oh, man, I'm pretty awe-inspiring. Whoa, look at me. (laughs) It's like you missed the point. Put down the mirror and gaze at it. And so this is a a problem in our lives is is that we want others to say how glorious we are, how great we are, how good we are, how awesome we are. And yet that will not satisfy us. But what will satisfy, what will eternally satisfy is the glory that is in God and who he is for us to see him as he truly is. Luke 17, 24 gives us just a little bit of a picture of his glory. It says, for the Son of Man in his day, so when he comes, will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. And that's a small, weak description. 
of his glory. The glory of God will be from horizon to horizon. It'll be, and we'll recognize we were made for this. We were made for this greater thing. I'm going to close with this. I was struggling a little bit with thinking about reflecting his glory or, or appreciating his glory or understanding his glory. And uh, what I was going to say was, well, it's like the sun. You have this brilliant brightness of the sun, and then it's reflected on the moon, and it still sheds some light. But it seemed sort of sterile as an illustration. Thankfully, I went to a wedding yesterday, and I got a better illustration. So I was at the royal wedding of Nate Stackruck and Tiana Kirk. So our, our church's intern married the children's pastor's son. Yeah, so that's pretty royal as far as Hillcrest is concerned. And um, I watched them. Of course, we all watched them. They were the center of attention. And you know what I noticed? And I mean, you can see this in many couples who are in love. I noticed how Nate would look at Tiana and smile. And she would light up in return. And then sometimes she would look at him and smile and he'd light up in return. There was just this warm responsiveness between them. And uh, it made me think. There's several things that came before this moment that we're at the wedding and we're seeing these two in love and, and enjoying each other. First, they adjusted their lives for each other. They radically adjusted their lives for each other. And they will continue to do that. In order to have a healthy marriage, they will. And they made room for each other. They made room for all the good, wonderful traits that each other have and probably a few annoying traits if you're married, right? They made room for each other. And they'll have to keep making room in order to experience the glory of married love. And I think this is the same for us. The Advent series, one of its uh, Advent seasons, one of its main emphasis is sort of preparation, anticipation, longing, making room. I mean, when we go back to the first Advent, we say, here is an inn that didn't have room to hold Jesus. And it's an easy analogy for us to say, well, will we make room? I was... About the time of Black Friday, I was going a little bit crazy in the commercialized Christmas season of it all, and I was looking after flyer after flyer. I was on Amazon. I was trying to find all sorts of deals and following them, and uh, when the whole weekend was over, Cyber Monday was done, I was like, what was that? That's not what I'm made for. And I realized that if I continued in that pattern all the way up till Christmas, that I would be making very little room in my heart for the work that Christ wants to do in my life in this season. And as I contemplated what we're going to be talking about over these number of weeks, growing to love the second coming of Christ, I thought, oh, I don't want to miss that. I want to miss that. And it's not just that I don't want to miss the, an intellectual understanding. I want to miss... I don't want to miss a spirit, Holy Spirit-generated affection in my heart for Christ. I don't want to miss 
a growth of my love for Jesus that can happen this season. But I'm going to have to make some room in order for that to happen. I think we'll all have to make some room. Would you stand with me? Lord, we come before you and we humbly ask that you would take scriptures that we read and songs that we sing and everything that you would be willing to use in this season to to grow in us a, a, a genuine and significant greater affection for your appearing that we would love your first appearing as we should and that we would love your second appearing as we should. Lord, I just pray you'd steer us away from just sort of a worldly fascination with the events, the timelines, and all those details, even though we'll talk about that. I pray, most of all, that you would show us the burning heart and center of why this is so precious and why... It is so um, needed in our lives, this longing for you. Lord, we have gone to a lot of places to fill that longing in our lifetime, in our experience, and sometimes it seems like we circle back in some of those same habits. But Lord, would you birth in us a brand new affection for you in this season? That's our prayer in your name.